the ultimate sports podcast, your one-stop shop for all your sporting news and discussion. On the podcast today, we have Dr. Gregory Charlotte, a physician, wellness expert, and author of the book, Why Doctors Skip Breakfast. He also runs retiredathlete.com. Welcome back to the podcast. A very warm welcome today to Dr. Gregory Charlotte. Today, we're going to talk about the psychology of athletes playing in football arenas, baseball, if you're in America, NFL, wherever, how that can differ on their performance, their attitudes, etc. Then also we're going to talk about more on the nutritional side, how athletes can really prepare themselves to be in good stead. So when they are back playing or if they are now, what they should be doing and some other kind of nutritional information just for not just athletes, but the general person towards longevity and leading a healthier life. How are you doing today, first off? Great, great. Yeah, it's good to be here. I'm out here in California. The weather's good. We're kind of excited that we're hoping sports are coming back. We're cautiously optimistic. Yeah, I think we've gotten back a bit more over here than you have over there so far. Yeah. Got all the football in the Premier League. I know NFL's starting to come back soon, isn't it? And baseball too. Yeah, you guys are doing a bit better than we are. Yeah, we still haven't really started too much yet, but we're hopeful that maybe football, basketball and baseball will come back. But, you know, honestly, we don't really even know for sure. Yeah, because you started easing out of lockdown at the same time as us and have gone back into them, right, thinking of most states. Right, and some of the places where we were looking at having games, like basketball is going to be in Florida, they're having an explosion of coronavirus, and then, you know, I think we've kind of slid backwards, so I don't know. We were all kind of excited about sports coming back, and even our restaurants had opened up a little bit, and now a lot of them are closing back down, so it's it's hard to see where, where the wind is blowing here with that. Yeah, you just got to kind of play it by and hope for the best almost so as i say we're going to talk about the psychology of playing in these empty stadiums i want to first just kind of ask all what research is there out there if if at all because i assume it's a fairly new topic to even be discussing yeah you know it's a great question and I'll, i'll tell you a lot of the research so far has been dealing with how the players feel about the current plans so our plans right now you know there's a few different ideas one of them is this orlando bubble they call it where these NBA players are quarantined. Basically, they're not really able to see other people. They're not able to spend time with players from other teams. They've got their own hotel room. They get food delivered to them. They're really isolated. So they're living in these bubbles. You know, it's funny. They had pictures online of some of their meals. And, you know, they were served with kind of looks like airline food. You know, these things wrapped in little bags and stuff. But the idea is that these players would be quarantined and then they would go play. And a lot of them are having a pretty hard time with it, to be honest with you, because they're cut off from their family and friends and their support system. And they're living in a strange place. And, you know, they're not doing the fun stuff they normally do. So a lot of those players are pretty unhappy. And then truthfully, you know, you look at baseball, which is another big thing that's coming back. And a lot of baseball players are reluctant to get back into the game because they don't feel it's safe and they're worried about exposing their family members to the virus. So that's a big problem. You know, with the empty stadiums, I mean, I think for a lot of athletes, there's good research on this, you know, the hearing their name and the roar of the crowd, I mean, that has an effect. That's where the home field advantage comes from. So if you're playing at an empty stadium, everybody loses the home field advantage. Yeah, they're saying teams have got this home advantage that they've not really got. So it's kind of unnecessary to even play in these big stadiums and that it could just be done essentially on a, a neutral ground or a, a training pitch, perhaps. 
you know, I wouldn't be surprised if that's where things headed. Because why would you fly all these people all over distant areas only to have them play in front of an empty stadium? It's not good for the athletes either. Yeah, especially with you guys, how much traveling the athletes would be doing. It's ridiculous. The traveling alone has such a a negative impact on the body, let alone when there's no almost point to it. Yeah, you know, it's funny because the traveling is actually kind of an interest of mine even before the virus started. And there's this whole thing now that we're looking at, which is sleep and sleep medicine and sleep health for athletes. And there's been some pretty cool studies that show that when athletes get enough or even extra sleep, they perform better you know, they, they play better, they run faster, they jump higher, their pitches are more accurate, their tennis serves are better. And so one of the big things that hurts these athletes sleep or when they have to travel, you know, they're, they're going across time zones, they're not sleeping, they get jet lag, which is a big problem. And so their sleep is messed up. And then a lot of times coaches will schedule these early morning practices in the new destination, you know, so they're getting used to the new place. And then this just messes up their sleep. So their performance is worse. But also, when you don't get enough sleep, your immune system gets wrecked. And we think that sleep deprivation is a risk factor for viral illnesses like coronavirus. Yeah, and I can't remember where I heard this. I think it was with Matthew Walker on the podcast. Yeah, Um, he's great. Yeah, yeah, he does loads of sleep. And I don't want to misquote him, but am I right in thinking that working late even just as a normal person now late into the night now that that's almost considered to lead to cancer and other severe problems within the body later on in life because of this change of sleeping pattern yeah he's great and, and actually he has a book that i recommend everybody read i think it's called why we sleep by matthew walker like you said really really good book yeah uh, he's on like tim ferris's show he's been on a few podcasts he's good but he his point was that when you're sleep deprived Uh, you're more likely to get terrible stuff like Alzheimer's, cancer, heart disease, high blood pressure. You're more likely to be depressed. You're more likely to get in car accidents. You do worse at work. You're actually even more likely to steal. It's kind of funny when you're, when you have employees that get less sleep, the rate of theft from companies even goes up. When you don't get enough sleep, it just ruins you psychologically and health-wise. But then you said, you brought up an interesting question, which is what if you're a night owl? You know, what if you're what if yeah. you're one of those people that likes to stay up late? So I, I'll just tell you, I'm not. I'm the opposite. I, I love getting up early. I get up at like four thirty, five o'clock. I just like to do that. I think if you work from home or if you have your own control of your schedule and you're a night owl, I think that's fine. You could stay up as late as you want as long as you can sleep in the next day and get your full amount of sleep. You know, the trouble for most night owls is if you don't go to bed till two, but then you still have to get up at seven the next morning because you work at eight you're not getting enough sleep. And so that's no good. But if you work from home or you could start working later and you go to bed at two, but you get up at 10 the next morning, that's fine. You know, that's just, you're just working within your own biology. Yeah. I guess you just have to take perhaps maybe vitamin D supplements to kind of make up for the loss of sunlight or would that not necessarily be valid for everyone? That's actually a great question also, because, you know, vitamin D is actually a hot topic now because we don't know this, but some people are, are speculating that vitamin D deficiency puts you at risk for coronavirus. And, you know, the science is still out, so we don't know for sure. So vitamin D is hot. I recommend to all of my patients and to my family members to try to get some sunlight. And the best way to do it, if you're an early bird like me, the best way to do it is to try to get morning sun because it kind of resets your clock and tells you it's time to wake up. It gets your melatonin, you know, going the way it should be. If you're a night owl and you're getting up at like 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, it's a little trickier. I would still say you need to get some, you should probably get some sun when you first wake up. 
but you're probably right. I mean, I think honestly, most of us need to take vitamin D supplements. I do. I recommend them to everybody. Yeah, I certainly read only bits, probably a fraction of what you know for the, how it's linked to coronavirus. And obviously there's plenty of other pros to taking it. Just to kind of take it back to sport a bit with the sleep, with these kind of athletes that, say you get the young athletes that are just going into a team that's still a teenager, Pat. They're obviously getting up and training the next day at the same time as the, the senior pros at around 30. And their sleep schedules are obviously different. Do you reckon in that, that kind of scenario, it'd be better to have training that wasn't so early in the, in the morning? Yeah, so this is a huge topic. And you're actually starting to see some American sports leagues acting on this because the data is so clear that sleep deprivation is hurting athletes. And so I think there's a few good practices that I think all sports teams should have. If you have a night game, you should not be having early morning practice that day or the next day. If you have a night game, let your players sleep in before because they're going to be up late that night. And they always go to bed later than the night game. You know, they're going to have the game and then they're probably going to unwind. Who knows if they're going to go out and eat, whatever. These people are going to be going to bed late. And so if you've got a night game, you should not have the morning practice the day of or the day after. There's lots of good research on that. So that's one of the big things. And actually, if you're looking at like lower level sports, you know, like high school one of the big kind of hot topics now is that kids, like teenagers, are not getting enough sleep. And there's some people that think that the reason why teenagers are so terrible is because they're sleep deprived. By nature, they need more sleep, just the way their bodies are. A teenager needs more sleep than a younger kid does or an adult. And their biological clock shifts a little bit. It's harder for them to go to bed early. Teenagers just want to sleep in. It's just the way their biology is. So if you're hitting these teenage sports players with early morning practice, six in the morning, they're still going to be going to bed late. They're not going to get enough sleep and they're going to do worse. And we know that when athletes don't get enough sleep, they're more likely to get injured. They don't work as well with other teammates. They don't coordinate as well. They're not as good at reading minds. You know, like you could look at the, your opponent and kind of guess what they're going to do. Say you're playing basketball. Your ability to kind of read someone and predict them is worse. You're more likely to get injured and you're more likely to get colds. So we're doing these kids a disservice if we've got these early practices. Yeah, and almost hindering their development, I guess, within the game. Right, that's right. I was actually going to ask about injury there, so it's led nicely onto it. How significant is this difference between the people that don't sleep with their risk or chance of getting injured? Yeah, it's actually pretty dramatic. I can't remember the numbers offhand, but you have a several time increase risk of injury if you sleep below. I can't remember exactly the numbers now, but if you sleep below like six or seven hours, your risk of injury goes up quite a bit. So you really want your players, non-teenagers, to be getting at least seven hours, I would say adults. And teenagers should probably be getting at least eight. But beyond the injury risk, you know, you get colds more often. Say you're not getting enough sleep, you're more likely to get food poisoning or get diarrhea because you ate something bad. You're more likely to get the flu. You're probably more likely to get coronavirus. And so for that little extra practice you got because you got up early, now you've got this guy who's out for a week with the flu. You know, it's not worth it. And how much in these coronavirus times where we have been on lockdown, how much of a difference do you think that's made to people's sleeping patterns or just picking up injury from those sports stars training at home because perhaps they're sleeping in longer, so they're less likely to get it? You know, that's a really good question. I don't know that that's been studied, but that's a really good question because you're right. We're in this almost experiment now that was forced on us, which is you've got all these people and they don't have their early morning practices and probably more people are sleeping in. So 
that's a, that would be a good study. That'd be a good thing to research. You know, the, the thing that makes it complicated is other things have changed too. Like people probably have stopped training or people that are training, maybe are training at home. So they're not getting their usual stuff, you know, their usual oversight, their usual equipment. My guess is that unless you're like a hardcore athlete, you probably let your training schedule slip. That's been a big problem. I don't think people are exercising as much now as they used to. No, I thought originally that just people I know and speaking to that they might take up a bit of fitness or because they've got the spare time in lockdown to get in shape a bit more it seems that people have just actually got lazier and that's just on the personal level without obviously research or anything i think the same thing i mean well, i'll tell you so in, in the united states a lot of our gyms are, are closed or if they're open the access is kind of limited yeah and so i don't know what it's like there so it's hard to get into gyms and you know there's an old saying and i think this is true if you want something done you give it to a busy person and i've even noticed this in myself if i don't have too much to do I'm just kind of sitting around. I don't feel like going to the gym. And I have weights at home, but I don't really feel like picking them up. I'd rather just stay on my couch. But if you're busy and you just got, you know, home and you know you have an hour to work out, then you do it. So I think you're right. I think a lot of us have let our workouts slip. Yeah, I definitely can relate to the fact that if you are just perhaps having a bit of a lazier day, you just kind of want to stick to having that lazy day rather than getting that one thing done. Right. Yeah, you get inertia. With the uh, athletes anyway, obviously sleep is something that they could better prepare themselves against, not just the coronavirus, but just any normal kind of sickness or bugs in normal times. But what other things could they be doing? Right. So there's actually a bunch of things athletes could and, and should be doing. And, and I talk about this a lot whenever I consult with athletes. So sleep, I think, is by far the biggest. Make sure you've got enough. And it's not just the quantity of sleep. It's also the quality of sleep by the way. So you can do things to improve your sleep quality. Like you want to sleep in a cold, dark room. If you are traveling, I actually think taking melatonin supplements are a good idea. I recommend that to people. If you can get a good high quality brand, all that stuff's important. But then beyond sleep, I think diet is a big thing. And it turns out that diet and athletic performance are pretty tightly related. I'll give you one kind of common example. Caffeine. Caffeine is actually a really, really good athletic enhancer. The IOC even sort of announced that they don't ban it, but it's a potent sports enhancer. So one of the big things I recommend to people is if you're strategic about caffeine. So if you drink caffeine, say, before your workout or before your game and you time it right, then your performance is going to be improved. You're going to run faster and you'll be stronger and it'll take you longer before you fatigue. So I recommend everybody use strategic caffeine. The trouble with it is if you don't use it strategically, it won't help you. So if you have you know, your morning cup of coffee every day, but your game is at 4 p.m., that morning cup didn't help. But if your game is at 4 and you time the caffeine right, so I recommend that. I'm a big fan of creatine. I think that most athletes should be using that. I think that's good stuff. It doesn't really seem to have much in the way of side effects if you're drinking enough. And there's some cool new stuff now about sugar and when you should be having it and if you should be having it and how that affects you. So for people that are serious, serious athletes, there's this really cool technology that I recommend called the Continuous Glucose Monitor, a CGM. And you've probably seen this. If you've known anyone with diabetes, you probably see they prick their fingers oh, yeah. and it'll tell them what their blood sugar is at that moment in time. And then they could look at that one moment and say, oh, I should eat something or I should take insulin or something like that. But now they have these really cool things that you can, they're a little electrode. It's a teeny little wire. You can't, you can hardly even see it. You bury it under the skin and it hooks up to this machine and it tells you what your blood sugar is all the time, continuously. You don't have to pick yourself or anything else. And so what athletes could do if they're with the right trainer is they could figure out exactly what foods to eat when. 
to keep their blood sugar in the high performance range. We see this a lot in basketball. You've probably seen this all the time. The teams, they break, they go into halftime. It happens in football too. They go into halftime and then they come out at the beginning of the third quarter and they're flat. I mean, this happens all the time. Yeah. So why are these teams flat to start at the third quarter? You would think it'd be the opposite. You'd think that they were refreshed, that they got a pep talk from their coach. You'd think they'd come out fired up and ready to go, but they're flat. And so what probably is happening is that what's happening is these guys, you know, they're going into halftime. The first thing they do is they down like a gallon of Gatorade, all right, because they're thirsty and it's all over the place and it's got sugar in it. And so they feel good for a little bit and their sugar level goes up. But that kind of sugar causes you to have this insulin spike. Insulin is what your body uses to clear sugar out of your blood. So they drink all this Gatorade. Their sugar goes up. They have this big insulin spike. And then it clears all the sugar out. And now their sugar is actually low. And so at the start of the third quarter, even though they just had this break, they're actually coming out with low blood sugar. And so they feel crappy because their blood sugar is too low. So I think for hardcore athletes, professional athletes, people to take this seriously, I would really look into getting these continuous glucose monitors and working with someone that could help you. And then you could figure out, well, how much sugar would I be taking? When should I take it? Maybe I shouldn't really have sugary things at all, but more complex carbohydrates. There's a lot of interesting stuff coming out now with the timing of sugar and what sugars you should eat. How many athletes do you reckon are using these continuous glucose monitors? Do you reckon it's a very small percentage? I think it's small. I think it's small because it's kind of new and I don't think a lot of people know about it. And you have to work with someone who kind of understands it, you know? Um, yeah. But, you know, it's interesting. So let me give you an example. So say you and I go out for, because everybody's body reacts to stuff differently, but our nutrition advice is always like this one size fits all thing, right? Like if you go yeah. to a nutritionist and I go to a nutritionist, we're going to hear the same thing. But your body and my body react to things differently. So let me just give you an example. Let's say that you and I go out for lunch, all right? And we have this meal, we have a lot of potatoes. Now, it may be that your body is real sensitive to potatoes. And when you eat potatoes, your blood sugar skyrockets. But my body, for whatever reason, isn't. And so my blood sugar doesn't go up too much. Now, the next day, we go out again and we get sashimi. So we have a bunch of rice. And this time, my body reacts to rice where my blood sugar skyrockets. But your body does well with rice and your blood sugar doesn't change too much. Now, we would never know this. And so I would be eating rice when I really shouldn't be because rice is bad for me. And you'd be eating potatoes when you shouldn't be because potatoes are bad for you, but you would never know that. But if you had one of these monitors on, you could see you're eating these potatoes and the next thing you know, your blood sugar is high. And then later you feel like crap. And so you can use these things to come up with like a customized diet plan for athletes or just for regular people. So I'm a big fan of this. Yeah, I mean, when you talk about it and you think about it, it does sound kind of pretty logical. But obviously, it's still a pretty fresh topic. Do you reckon, is this down to genetics? I think a lot of it's genetics, but you know, this is one of the exciting things about sports and nutrition, which is that you could train yourself to react differently to foods to some degree. So I'm a big fan of fasting, intermittent fasting, and I do it. And actually in my book, Why Doctors Skip Breakfast, I talk a lot about intermittent fasting and why people should fast. But there's this whole new thing now about training athletes. And you've probably heard that some athletes are training while they're fasting, they're not eating before they train, yeah, or they're avoiding sugar before they train. And the reason for that, and the reason that might be smart, is what you're doing to metabolize fats instead of sugar. And so you're making your muscles more efficient. Instead of needing a bunch of sugar in your blood for your muscles to work, you're training your muscles to work with less sugar. 
So the trick is that you train kind of while fasting or, you know, without eating sugar, but then for the game, when it really matters, then you also add these sugars back or carbs back into your diet. And so now you've got muscles that are really efficient and then you're also hitting them with some extra, with some extra carbs. And so you can get real high performance. And how long does it take to train the body to do that? That's a good question. You know, honestly, that probably varies by your genetics and also by how seriously you do it. But that's one of those things that, you know, the science is still kind of out on this. A lot of this stuff is kind yeah. of fresh performance stuff. But, you know, honestly, I think if you're someone who has a game coming up, I would try doing some of your training fasted. And, and you're probably going to feel not so great the first couple of times because your body's not going to be used to it. But eventually you get used to it and you feel pretty good when you're training fasted. And then, and then when you eat your carbs before the game, you feel great. And there's another thing actually that's pretty hot in the same area and it's ketones. People are taking ketones and actually England, I think, this just came out. I should have researched this before speaking to you. I think in England, in, before the Olympics in 2012, I want to say, some of the English teams were taking ketones and improved their performance. It's a legal thing to do. It's fine. But I don't think they wanted to announce it because, you know, they didn't want everybody copying them. But ketones actually are kind of like they simulate fasting. They give your body a fuel that's not sugar. And so they can improve athletic performance. A lot of cyclists are using it. Lance Armstrong was using it. He said he used it. He actually went on record talking about how great ketones are. So there's some pretty cool performance-enhancing foods and, and dietary strategies that are good. As you say, these are all perfectly legal. It's not something that's going to show up if you are a professional athlete, perhaps get in trouble for. Yeah, right. So all of these at the moment are legal. Some leagues have some restrictions on how much caffeine you could have. You know, these yeah. the rules change on this stuff, so you have to keep your eye out for it. But at the moment, ketones are legal, and, and at least some degree of caffeine is legal with most places. There's one thing I want to just pull up on caffeine. I just take when you mentioned it about the pre-workout or um, even before a game. Would, do you reckon that's say for a, the average gym goer or even an athlete that's going to the gym that having coffee or caffeine is better than some of the pre-work supplements available out there? Yes. So I'm a huge fan of coffee, <laughs> and actually we talk about that too in the book Why Doctors Skip Breakfast. But I'm a big fan of coffee, and coffee has a lot of health benefits. It seems to reduce your risk of Alzheimer's disease and everything else. But for working out. I definitely recommend most people it's safe to have caffeine. I think where you get into trouble is if you have these like astronomical amounts, you know, so if you're taking caffeine pills and all these energy drinks and stuff, you might be getting into the range of getting too much caffeine. But I think, you know, if you're taking say like one to 200 milligrams of caffeine, which is maybe let's, let's say like a, the equivalent of like a medium or a large Starbucks coffee, it's going to be good for the average Joe. I try to have caffeine if I can before most of my workouts. And I, I notice, you know, I work out better and, you know, I'm not a performance athlete by any means, but when my workouts are better, I have better endurance. It even might help you lose more. Like if you're doing cardio, say you're, you're running, you're going to the gym and doing cardio. If you have caffeine before that, it might even help you burn more calories and lose more fat. It's just good stuff. The only thing you run into trouble with, like I said, is an ungodly amount of it. Or if you have a lot of it, if you're working out you know, in the evening, it might interfere with your sleep. Yeah. Another supplement that you spoke about is creatine as well. I just wanted you to perhaps explain it a bit more for the people that don't realize what creatine does. Now, my understanding of it is, and this is probably wrong, is that it just attracts or the water to be absorbed by the muscles more. Right. So creatine does a few things. 
it makes you look better, which is why a lot of people like it. Yeah. And so it makes you look better because, well, in large part because of what you said. So what it does is it's, it goes into your body and it goes into your muscles and the muscles sort of suck it up. And then that draws in water and it pulls water in. And so it makes your muscles more swollen. And so that's why you look better. But also it actually helps your workouts. And so a bunch of different leagues have actually sort of reported that creatine is beneficial, including things like the Journal of the International Society of Sports Nutrition, the American College of Sports Medicine. A number of different organizations have found that creatine is helpful for sports performance. And it increases power, increases intensity. It seems to be pretty good. And people tend to do better when they're lifting weights with creatine. So I, I'm a big fan of it. But one of the other things I like about it is it seems to be, and this is kind of newer, it seems to be good for the brain too. It may actually help people think a little bit better. And one of the things that people are starting to use it for now is football. If you've had a concussion, this is a big problem in football. I imagine you probably have this in rugby too. I don't know as much about rugby. But in American football, you know, a lot of players get concussions, long-term problems. They increase the risk of brain diseases and dementia and Parkinson's and Alzheimer's and everything and depression. Creatine seems to help reduce the harm from concussions. And so a lot of people are now looking at giving people creatine maybe before and, and certainly after concussions as a way of actually protecting the brain. Wow, that's quite interesting that because on the topic of concussions, one of the quite hot topics earlier this year was sort of head in footballs or because of the impact that has on the brain. They've actually banned it for kids, which is probably the right thing to do as the brain's developing. But for adults, there was this, this case, we used to use a lot heavier footballs. A lot of the former players have come out and got serious brain damage from Parkinson's, different Alzheimer's, etc. from in the sport. So it sounds like creatine could perhaps mitigate that for the modern footballers. I know, I know the footballs themselves have changed, but... Yeah, I think it could. Ketones, uh, which I mentioned earlier, that also may even help with some concussions. There's some pretty cool new concussion science. But I tell you, the big thing about them is they're pretty bad news. And I don't think that, I don't think that we appreciated how bad they were before. You know, and it used to be, you remember this, that a player would get a concussion... You know, they'd sit out a play or two, and then the coach would put them back in because yeah. they're back on their feet again. And that ended up not being such a good idea for these players because after you have a concussion, you really need to give your chance, your brain a chance to rest and to heal. And if you're thrown back into the game, you know, a few minutes later, you haven't done that. And you really probably need, honestly, days or weeks where you're not getting any kind of trauma. I think, you know, what you were saying about the lower weight soccer balls and not letting kids do that those are smart moves I, I would totally support that you just don't want to whack your head around which is not not a good thing no and even with the concussion like with a lot of the sport the guys obviously want to get out there and perform and do their best for the team or their individuals but it comes down to professionals nowadays having to say no that you can't do that because one obviously they want to go out no matter what and two they're probably not in the right frame of mind to make up the right decision right and that's important you know one thing i've noticed here i'd be curious to know as you've noticed the same thing there is the relationship between players and like the team and team owners that i think has kind of gotten worse and i think a lot of players feel and maybe they're right that they're just sort of a commodity they're there they're kind of spent that owners get whatever they can out of them and then they're kind of cast aside you know like here for example in the u.s for many sports leagues, if you haven't played for more than a certain number of years, you don't get insurance after, you don't get pensions, you know, you get all these problems and you're left to deal with it on your own. And so I kind of feel 
badly for a lot of these players because they're hardworking. They want to give it their all. You know, that's how they got this far to begin with. You know, maybe they're only playing for a few years. They get dinged up with a few concussions and now they have these lifelong problems and they may not even be able to get insurance afterwards. It's a big problem. I don't know what it's like out there. Yeah, I think there's probably a, a few problems with that and certainly being cast away. The owners over here are probably even worse than with football teams and rugby teams, etc. Because we've had quite an influx of foreign owners that perhaps aren't even in the country most of the time. So they are treated like commodities. But what you're saying there about how players are slung aside, I know in the NFL, the career of a player often is, is only a few years, if that's for some of them. I can appreciate what you're saying with that. I mean, it's a bit different, I guess, because we've got the, the NHS and obviously there's no insurance healthcare system. But in terms of specialist treatment, I think you're not really going to find that on the NHS, which is what they need. I think you probably get it with football because they have the player association, which they're still part of when they leave. I can't think of another sport where there's anything similar to that. Yeah, it's it's a big problem. And, you know, the other thing that happens here is like another insurance. So people in the U.S., a lot of them want to get life insurance, you know, particularly if, you're, if you've got kids, or you're married or something. So if you die young, then, you know, your spouse or your kids get some cash. And a lot of football players, I think they need to work at least four years in the league to get I may be getting some of the numbers wrong, but I think they need to work like four years in the league to qualify for their life insurance policy through the NFL. But say they only play for two years, they don't get the stuff from the NFL and then no insurance company wants to give them insurance because they're too risky. And so it's scary for them because for the rest of their lives, if something bad happened to them, their spouses or their kids may be left with, you know, in a pretty bad spot. Yeah, and this takes us nicely onto what you do. Is it the first in America or perhaps even one of the first on the globe that specializes to former athletes? Right, yeah. So I actually have a site, retiredathletehealth.com. Sorry for the shameless plug there, but I have a telemedicine clinic. This is kind of a big thing now where, you know, everybody's afraid of catching the coronavirus. I don't blame them. So they're trying to see their doctors from home. And so I work with a lot of athletes, you know, they just call me up or, you know, we meet online and so it's easy. But it turns out that there aren't that many people that are kind of focused on the health of retired athletes, with the exception of kind of concussions with football. That's a big thing. A lot of people are looking at that. But otherwise, retired athletes, I think, at least in the States, are struggling. You know, they, a lot of them have depression, which is a big problem. A lot of them have this thing, sleep apnea, where... You know, I'll tell you, this is what happens. A lot of, especially in football, football and weightlifting, this happens all the time. These players, they get used to eating a lot. You know, they have to eat a lot when they're training and when they're playing. So they have these huge meals, tons of calories. But then when they stop playing, they end up, <laughs> they keep the eating habits. And so they gain weight. And then a lot of them are obese. A lot of them end up getting diabetes. Many of them have this sleep apnea where they're not breathing well at night. And there aren't that many people that are kind of taking an interest in this. So we're retired athlete health, we're trying to, to find out how we could help these players and post kind of some of the latest news and what's going on with, with athletes. And I would be delighted to work with other people that are interested in helping. It's an important field and I, I don't think enough people are working on it, except for the concussions, which thankfully they're there's a lot of research on that. Pretty new field as well. You mentioned uh, sleep apnea there. It's a big topic, so we'll kind of just brush over it slightly. But this is something that a few years ago, I think it's fair to say they thought was pretty uncommon. But it seems that it's a lot more common than we first thought. Right. And so, you know, when we breathe, our muscles relax. And so when you're asleep, the muscles around your throat relax too. And if you don't have sleep apnea, your throat muscles relax a little bit, but it's no big deal. Everything's pretty much the same. If you have sleep apnea, they relax a little too much, or maybe your tongue is a little too big, or just the way your anatomy is. And so your throat closes off when you're sleeping. 
So when you snore, when you're snoring at night, that's actually the sound of some of your airways getting blocked off. If you snore a lot, or some people even have ap true apnea, so apnea means you don't breathe at all, like your airway's totally blocked, then you're basically, what you're doing is you're suffocating overnight. Every night you sleep, you're kind of gasping for air and suffocating. And this is a big problem because it causes you to have terrible sleep, but it also causes your oxygen levels to be low. It causes stress in the heart and it increases your risk of death and heart disease and brain problems. It's, it's a bad thing to have. So I recommend anybody, if you snore, especially if you're also sleepy during the day, get tested for this. And, and the cool thing is, it's actually very easy to test for this now. It's much easier to test for it than it used to be. There's even little devices you can get tested for it at home. Yeah, and it brings us back to what we just talked about before with the sleep and how that affects injury for athletes and your know, immune system and everything else. And I think most people don't even realize that they have it most of the time. Right. It causes all those issues and they're not even aware of where they're coming from. Right. Some people, they do everything right. You know, they go to bed, they're in bed for eight or nine hours, but they still feel sleepy the next day. And that shouldn't really happen. And so if you're feeling sleepy the next day and you're getting enough hours in bed, there's something wrong with your sleep. And it's worth figuring that out. You don't want to suffer through that. You know, you're more likely to get in a car accident. You're more likely to get injured when you're playing sports. If you're a kid, it's going to hurt your growth. So getting tested for sleep apnea is very important. And there's a lot of different treatment options, but you... Now, I just want to round up now. We mentioned some of the supplements before and obviously sleep is the massive thing to, to help improve people's health but what are the other supplements that perhaps that we haven't mentioned the best things that people could be doing and athletes so in addition to creatine there's a few things i pretty much recommend everybody take there's a herb turmeric oh yeah it's used a lot in curries that is fantastic it reduces inflammation it prevents a whole bunch of diseases it doesn't seem to have any side effects it's inexpensive i recommend everybody take that i take a supplement called zma and it's a mixture of zinc, magnesium, and vitamin B6. And I like it because it, I think most people are also zinc deficient. Zinc actually may also help protect you from coronavirus. So I, magnesium and zinc both help you sleep. So I take ZMA every night before bed. I think people should do that. It may also increase your testosterone level a little bit. So I'm a big fan of that. I think that people should take, there's something called resveratrol, which is Got, kind of got a lot of attention. It's an anti-aging thing. It was found in, in grapes and in wine. You could take either resveratrol or terostilbean, which is a similar thing. So I recommend everybody take those. There's no disadvantage to it. And then the big thing that's kind of open for debate is protein. You know, a lot of people debate about this. And, and talking about sports supplements, protein is really one of the biggest sports supplements anyone takes. You know, everybody's taking protein shakes, protein drinks, you're squeezing protein in. Some people eat like five chickens a day or 10 eggs. This has actually become pretty controversial in the sports science world. There's no doubt that if you eat extra protein and you're weightlifting and you're an aggressive weightlifter, that extra protein will help you put on more muscle. But we now think that the extra protein otherwise is kind of harmful to you. It probably increases your fat and it may, it may accelerate your aging. Eating a lot of protein has sort of a pro-aging effect. It makes you get old before your time. And so I think, you know, if you're a teenager or you're a professional athlete or even a you know, college athlete, it's probably a good idea to take a lot of protein because it'll probably help you. But I think for the rest of us, I think it's a mistake to have these huge amounts of protein. So I don't recommend that. Instead, what I recommend is taking fish oil and eating as much olive oil as you can and getting more healthy fats instead of going totally crazy on protein. Oh, that's really interesting. I've not heard anything about that before. And it, it sounds intriguing. I was speaking to someone actually, I think it was last week now, and we was talking about the difference between 
whey-based proteins and uh, plant-based routines, which tend to be on the rise. And that kind of similar links into that. Yes. And I should tell you, I'm pescatarian and I try not to have the whey-based proteins. So I'm a big fan of the plant-based ones. So protein is a mixture of these different amino acids. When you say protein, what you're really doing is you're taking a mixture of amino acids. Those are the building blocks of protein. So it turns out that the different protein sources have different mixtures of amino acid. You know, the, a protein from whey is going to be different than, say, protein from peas because you have different amino acids in it. And it's probably true, although, again, this is also pretty hot kind of new science, but it's probably true that the protein from whey, the animal proteins, have a mix of amino acids that's more aging than the protein from plants, like from peas, as an example. So I recommend for most people to try to get as much plant protein as possible and not to go overboard with animal protein, unless you're a professional athlete or a college athlete and gaining weight is very important for your career. Well, that ties it all up nicely. I've thoroughly enjoyed speaking with you today. All of these topics we kind of talk about, they almost like fascinate me. So I kind of already knew a little bit to kind of prep me for it, but just hearing it from you and then going into detail has been really open in experience. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I appreciate you having me on to talk about this. Yeah, well, promote your book now. I've looked at what's included into it and I'm definitely buying it to read it. And I highly recommend just looking at the book. Definitely be an interesting read. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so the book is called Why Doctors Skip Breakfast, Wellness Tips to Reverse Aging, Treat Depression and Get a Good Night's Sleep. And you can get that on Amazon. You can get it in the UK also, actually. And it's also available from Audible. And in fact, if you have some UK listeners, you could message me. I might even be able to give you, I've got a couple free Audible codes if you want to download the book from Audible, if you're into that. So if you're in the UK and you hear this and you want to hear the audiobook, message me. And the easiest way to reach me, I'm pretty big on LinkedIn. So Greg Charlop, C-H-A-R-L-O-P. I'm on Facebook, but LinkedIn is good. Or I have a website, GregoryCharlopMD.com. Or you can go to the RetiredAthletehealth.com website to find me. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for coming on. As I say, it's been a great conversation that we've had. Yeah, thank you. You're a good interviewer. You ask good questions and you, you think about things on the fly. I, I had a lot of fun. Cheers. Thank you. To everyone listening, thanks for joining us as well. Thank you very much to Greg and uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you very much for tuning in. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Ultimate Sport P. On Instagram, it's the Ultimate Sports Podcast. And follow us on any streaming service that you use to receive your podcast. And we'll see you next time.